0: Same China, China, different, different stories. stories. We are the we ones one fathered their own life in a new life. Adopted babies Adopted from babies from China. Tell you more about your adoption, correct? Yes. So I'm here with Kelly. Well, welcome to ABC Adopted Babies from China podcast where I talk to Chinese adoptees usually and others whose lives we become a part of. And I'm speaking with Kelly today. Yeah, that's usually how I started. So it seems to be the best way to go. But Kelly, could you share more about your adoption or what you'd like to share?
1: My parents adopted me from Guangzhou back in 2002. So I just passed the 20th anniversary a few months ago of my adoption. Mm -hmm. I was 15 months old, and I believe they said I came from the Gaozhou City Orphanage, if I remember correctly. However, they adopted me in Guangzhou. And I think some people on the podcast mentioned that their parents stayed at White Swan Hotel. My parents... Mm -hmm stayed there as well. And they recalled that I really enjoyed the kanji there, likely because they put some sugar in it. There were about nine families in our adopted group. Three of them were Asian American, including my parents. And then the rest of them were white. And I think I remember my dad saying that there was a family of Chinese descent. And they said that they weren't going to tell their kids that or their daughter, that she was adopted. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. Wow. It was never really a secret for me. My parents mm-hmm. introduced me to the topic through a book called Tell Me Again About the Night That You Were Born. It mm-hmm. It's about domestic adoption, not international adoption. But it was never really a secret, I think, that I was adopted. And I always accepted it. Because as kids, we hear these stories that our parents give us, and it's like, okay, this is how the world was. So for me, it was kind of weird knowing that some kids were actually related to their parents in a way. Mm.
0: Oh, oh wow, that's really that's like quite a memory that your, I guess, your parents remember too. But your so your family, your parents are Asian American, right? Or yes,
1: they're Japanese American. My dad. His dad was born in Fresno, California. He was part of the group of Japanese-American farmers working, I think. And then after the war, he moved back to Japan because he was upset about Japanese-American incarceration, Mm -hmm. rightfully so. And then he created a life for himself in Japan. But then he married my grandmother, and they decided to move back to the United States. And they brought my dad, who was about two years old, and my aunt, who was about nine at the time, and they grew up in Gardena. And then my mom also grew up in Gardena, but her parents were a lot more Americanized, if that makes sense. After the war, they really didn't want to associate themselves with Japanese culture. They did everything they could to really erase their Japanese identity, and become American because they were afraid that something
0: like that would happen again. Oh, wow. So it sounds like you've had a lot of open conversations with your family.
1: I believe. I did this topic for my senior project in high school, so I Mm -hmm. interviewed my parents just to see what they had to say about the Japanese-American incarceration and my adoption, too.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so you really dive deep into your story. I feel like it's senior senior year of high school, you're still relatively like younger and sort of starting to really understand more about your adoption, but it sounds like growing up it was always something that you were familiar with too.
1: Yeah. I unfortunately it was difficult sometimes because I remember in elementary school I live in the South Bay, so there's a significant Asian American population, and our school had a multicultural day, I believe, and they told you to decorate these paper dolls with the cultural garments of your ancestral homeland, and that was difficult for me because Mm -hmm. on one hand, I didn't feel comfortable doing Chinese traditional garments because I'm like okay I didn't grow up with that culture I almost felt like I would be appropriating it in a weird sense but at Mm -hmm. the same time even though I identified as Japanese American I was afraid that I was sort of an imposter reclaiming Japanese heritage if that makes sense because I knew that I didn't have Japanese ancestry so it was this weird bind that it put me in.
0: Oh, yeah. And at such a young age, too, um, because I think a lot of adoptees I've spoken with and maybe you've heard a lot of stories where it's like our parents are usually white. We have the whole like American identity that we associate with. But having that added layer of growing up in a culture um, that's like Japanese-American culture, for sure, it sounds like, or Japanese traditions.
1: Did your school have a multicultural day or anything like that?
0: I think so, but I don't have a very good memory, so I don't even remember that far back. I do think I probably did have some sort of, like, write your family tree.
1: Oh, yeah, that's such an uncomfortable topic. And it's it's very, it speaks to the idea of a bionormative family, I think. Mm -hmm. And not all families are that nuclear family
0: structure. Right. Are you the young, are you the only child of your family or do you have siblings too?
1: I'm an only child, but both of my parents have older sisters who I'm incredibly close to. My okay. parents make a conscious effort to really stay close to their older sisters. So I grew up knowing them and having them as a part of my life, which I think helps.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always good to hear about families who want to communicate and stay
1: together yeah <laughs> one of the things that sort of struck me about that interview I did with my dad back when I was a senior in high school I believe he said we didn't know a lot about Chinese culture and so we decided to raise you as Japanese American because I remember I went to Obon festival my aunt got me this coral pink kimono if I be- remember correctly I remember Going to Gardena Buddhist Church. So really and then we also celebrated Oshogatsu or Japanese American New Year. I helped my aunt roll sushi. I also celebrated with ozoni, which is this dish. It's a soup with mochi and we put napa in it as well so my background is similar to that of other people who grew up in japanese american families the only mm-hmm. one of the differences though is just the fact that i have chinese ancestry so there's this uncertainty yeah. about claiming nike heritage given that i don't have nike ancestry
0: oh wow yeah that must be it's very fascinating to talk with you because i don't think i've met many adoptees who've grown up with like a very i guess an asian background or like asian american heritage whether it be chinese or japanese or like indonesian or something else but did this carry a lot of interest for you in your studies too um did you you decide to like look further into i guess your ancestry or also your i guess it's like it is part of your ancestry because your parents are japanese but i guess the chinese part of it too is there
1: It's really interesting. That was one of the reasons why I decided to become an Asian American studies major, to sort of dive deeper into my own family heritage. Unfortunately, originally for Mellon Mays, it's this undergraduate fellowship program, which works to make academia more inclusive, to have more BIPOC and other underrepresented groups within academia to share their stories. Originally I wanted to do it on Asian adoptees who'd been adopted into a different Asian nationality, but I realized that there wasn't enough data yet, if that makes mm, sense. Yeah. So I switched my topic to studying transnational and transracial
0: adoption in YA literature. Oh. That's really cool. So that's that's your focus of study now where at school because you're you're currently a student, right?
1: Yes, I'm currently working I wrote a topic proposal, but I'm in the process of revising my proposal right now.
0: Ah wow. Have you found a lot of YA novels that have the focus that you were you were just speaking about?
1: Yes. Very few of them are actually written by adoptees though. So even though they capture some of the facets facets of being an adoptee at the same time i there's a few things in the novel that i think oversimplify the issues if that makes sense oh yeah that does i think with a ad- with novels there's kind of this desire people have or to have a neat conclusion if that makes sense at the end they don't like open-ended answers and sometimes I think being an adoptee sort of you have that open-ended even though you can love your parents that raised you you could still have complex emotions about the whole process and I think that the novel structure one of the limitations is it doesn't have enough room for that nuance and that open-ended ending that the novels
0: have. Oh yeah, I mean, that's, I guess that's similar to our experience too as adoptees in life uh, as we go through things and as we get older, I wanna say that there's not really like a finite end to any of our discovery.
1: It's like, mm, sometimes people will ask you for medical stuff, do you have a family history of this or that? And it's like, how am I supposed to know?
0: Right. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, we don't, usually. Usually.
1: You said that your adopted parents are white, correct? Mm-hmm. With these recent attacks on the AAPI community, and especially what happened last year in Atlanta, did you ever feel like sometimes it was hard to talk about these kind of issues?
0: Well... I would say the relationship with my parents has been a little bit more estranged in the past couple years. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think, especially, uh, especially at the beginning of the pandemic too, there were some other underlying challenges we were facing. Mm -hmm. And then I, I, we essentially, I parted ways with my parents for a little bit and then everything happened and, um, we still haven't really spoken about any of it that much. Um, I do usually ask other adoptees like what's what's it been like with your family and I've heard a mix of some people said that they their parents like reached out or some parents were unfamiliar or weren't even aware that their their child was experiencing the such the racism that is out there and it became like a educational opportunity um, but I know my personal experience we haven't I definitely haven't really spoken with my parents about it or I mean, even in New York City, there was there's been a lot of attacks on the subways yeah. and then the the murder that happened in Chinatown recently, too. And it's mm-hmm. just like, uh, man, this is horrible that these things are happening. And I would like to think it's not because they're Asian individuals, but it's strong likelihood that's a part of it. Um, but I think it is it's tough. It's very tough to just be able to. I understand more about our adoption, or I know my personal experience, my adoption, and then also the Asian side of like growing up in a culture that I'm, I'm that's not my ancestral roots or something, too. But it seems you must face like another layer added to that of growing up in another Asian culture. That <laughs> yeah. is, I mean, it's very fascinating, too. Do you also, did you learn any like Japanese too, or?
1: Mm, my dad said that mm, the thing is Otof, I do use a few Japanese words not many mm, I could probably count them on one hand but Otosan or my dad said he didn't really pay attention in Japanese mm-hmm. school so all the words he knows now he knows a few other than those words but he knows mainly square words
0: <laughs> oh I love it <laughs>
1: It's kind of entertaining, and then I give him a hard time about it. Out of all the years that you spent in Japanese school, you remember the swear words, really, Atosan? <laughs> <laughs> it's the useful things, I
0: guess. Yeah, he knows how to get into a fight in Japan. Oh my goodness. I, I don't know if that comes in handy. I would hope not. I would hope it
1: doesn't come in handy, but I think that's, if anything really what I grew up with although he is third generation technically I guess I would be considered fourth generation although I'm not sure if I'm fourth generation say or if I'm kind of a first generation if that makes mm. sense
0: yeah it definitely does and then
1: oh yeah I was thinking I remember mm. the SAT and other standardized tests require you to Sort of list your nationality and then Uh your ethnicity. And I remember on the AP test, I'm like, do I mark Japanese? Do I mark Chinese? (laughs) Because I didn't grow up with Chinese culture, and some people Mm -hmm. did. And they might have had stories about people frowning upon their lunch choice, being racist about it, and going through those experiences. So I feel like sometimes if I try to say, oh, I'm Chinese American, I might be co-opting that experience when I didn't have to deal with that. But at the same time, it's kind of weird because I don't fully belong as Japanese American. And I think that society has a certain expectation for you based off of what you look at or look like and that might not necessarily reflect your lived experiences oh
0: oh of course and I think hopefully ideally during this time of 2022 it seems like there's more opportunity to be able to either just not share what your ethnicity is quote unquote or we're seeing more representation of Asian individuals, all different backgrounds in media and entertainment. So it's like, all right, we don't have to. I don't know. There seems like there's still a generalization of the Asian American experience, even with all the representation of different people out there.
1: Yeah. I remember a conversation that we were having in, I think, my Asian Latino immigration class, and we talked about how the term Asian American, even though I think it originated in the 1970s, it sometimes erases the unique experiences of people who might be considered Asian American. And it doesn't And they're talking about how sometimes the data needs to be disaggregated because certain communities have certain challenges that they're facing Mm. based on their histories. And I think that sometimes the term doesn't necessarily reflect the complexity of adoptees experiences. So hopefully when I'm in academia, I can use my own experience to advocate for a more inclusive definition or at least push the departments to be more inclusive toward the experiences of adoptees, if that
0: makes sense. It does. It does. That's really wonderful that you'd like to really push for helping to define and really differentiate Mm -hmm. amongst everybody too. And do you, do you currently live in California too? You grew up in California and you said South Bay side. Yes. Uh,
1: I go to Cal State Long Beach right now, but all of my classes are online, so I'm living at home right now.
0: Oh, that's right. We were talking about this before we started recording that have you been in your studies only exclusively online or did you get a year to be in person too?
1: Three quarters of the year through or three I had three quarters of my freshman year in person. And then after I took my US history midterm, that's when it was announced that we were going online. So it was in the middle of my spring semester. So at least I got three quarters of a year in person, but then we heard that everything was going online. They said, oh, it's only going to be for a couple of weeks and a couple of weeks turned into a couple of years
0: yeah yeah i think that's what well we're recording on march 3rd so it was what march 13th i think when it was like all right everybody um you have to go home we'll see you in a week (laughs) it's been two years since oh my gosh
1: pandemic time feels like a different story altogether
0: oh yeah i mean I, i think it's like what happened in 2021 and 2020 i i guess since i didn't have a a semester schedule or anything. I wasn't keeping track very well, <laughs> but I hope you're able to go back before you graduate. That seems just overwhelming to not be able to have any of your schooling at all in person because that's part of the experience.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm, I applied for several summer research opportunities. Fingers crossed that I get into them, and then it looks like I will be going To in in-person classes come the fall so let's hope that I'm able to and then I think next spring is the Asian American Studies Conference will be held in Long Beach so I think I'll be able to present my research then and hopefully the one on transnational and transracial adoption Mm. in YA literature so that'll be an interesting experience and Hopefully, through the conference, I can sort of shed light on some of the experiences of adoptees, if that makes sense.
0: It does. That's really exciting to hear more about your project and your research, too, or I guess your whole entire thesis and your research, because I think a lot of us want to, like, read that type of stuff and that studies.
1: Yeah, I remember in, I don't remember whose interview it was, but someone said that a lot of adoptees end up doing theses
0: or research projects about adoption. Yeah, I I was actually surprised to learn that because I didn't know that. I was like, oh, I didn't know so many people really are in touch with their adoption. I feel like it's a younger age when, we, when uh, a lot of adoptees look at the science and the psychology and then what we see now and how adoption relates to it. I was like, I didn't really think about it until just recently, maybe like three years ago. So it's like, I'm always fascinated that, it's like impressed that people are so in touch with their adoption then too, if that makes sense.
1: (laughs) I think it comes from a place of kind of trying to fill in the gaps where we have these missing pieces in our family histories, because you'll have people who say that, Oh, I remember my parents telling me that I was a very sleepy baby or whatever. And I spent the first 15 years of my, or not 15 years, but 15 months of my life away from the parents I live in now. And that's one of the more critical moments of a child's development, I believe. So I'm sure that has affected me in ways that I'm not even aware of
0: right now. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, I think they say like your first 12 months, or I don't remember exactly, but it's, there's like a specific months number that says your development is pretty rooted in you at that point, supposedly.
1: Yeah. Um, My parents said when they went to China, mm, once my dad, mm, they warned the kids or the parents that the older ladies would yell at the adopted parents if they didn't bundle their babies (laughs) tightly enough. And then I, and maybe that's why I'm cold all the time other than being in Southern California. So I'm a weather wimp, but I remember that a tall son Rolled me in a stroller, and then he accidentally rolled me off the curb. And then a flock of ladies came out of nowhere and started yelling at him, probably oh in gosh. Cantonese. And he had no idea what they were saying, but he threw up his hands and said, "I'm sorry,
0: I'm sorry." Oh, you know, because you have that barrier, I guess. It's like I don't, I don't understand.
1: Yeah, do? he said that was his first major parenting mistake. And then <laughs> Okasan just laughed once she found out that. Chinese parenting police I think that's what he labeled them as went after him but it's good to see that they're sort of looking out for the kids
0: oh yeah I, I've heard that too a lot of the I guess I don't know what they're called the caretakers I think that's how I understood what they are like the caretakers and those who work at the welfare centers um I mean I guess they basically have to take care of a bunch of babies and raise them so <laughs>
1: Yeah, right now for my migration and ethnicity in modern China class, I'm doing a project on the implementation of the one child policy in the specific uh-huh. region of Guangdong, which is I think Guangzhou is part of Guangdong province in China. Mm. And I, I heard that a few people got around the one child policy, if I remember correctly, by going to Hong Kong, which was under British control. Of the, oh. as of the time having their kids there and then moving back to oh. the area so there was a bit of a loophole
0: there whoa no i didn't know that but i guess because that is pretty close to hong kong geographically that would be oh yeah
1: are there any things that you wished that people would know about adoption and disaggregating we talked about Asian American as a collective term and some of its
0: limitations. Mm. That's a good question. I feel like with having other people understand adoption, I guess it's similar to maybe how a lot of first generation or second generation, like immigrants from Asian countries feel too with, uh, I don't know, to me, I feel like there's with Asian Americans, I guess the first generation, second generation, they, they normally grow up in that culture of their ancestry. And with that in mind, I think sometimes people will engage or interact in a way that's like, oh, I understand, like, you already are a part of that culture that your ancestry is from, whether it be, like, China, Korea, or India, or anywhere else. So, like, people understand that, and the way they ask questions isn't going to be how we as adoptees are asked, so like, oh, immediately... It's like always oh, your family white like that's always the the first question we're usually asked being like a adoptee from China I feel or Korean adoptee yeah and, and then, it's just like why don't we get the same kind of regard that these first generation second generation Asian Americans feel and that I mean as a collective I would say as adoptees in America were like I I would consider myself an Asian American too um, but yeah.
1: Yeah. I remember that my parents were saying that "Mm," for the most part, I really passed as their biological kid because many people can't tell different Asian nationalities apart. So I didn't stick out in a visible way. Although my dad is five, five and I'm five, six and a half, six and three quarters, somewhere around (laughs) there. I'm taller than him. And I remember I have a friend whose family is Taiwanese-American, and he was saying that he noticed that I look like I have Chinese ancestry, but my last name is Japanese. And it was only after I mentioned that I was adopted, he didn't want to ask because it would sound rude. But once I mentioned that I was an adoptee, it kind of made sense for him. And I think he might be the first one to really notice that I have a Japanese last name, and yet I look Chinese.
0: I was wondering about that, too. Do you know why your family decided to adopt from China versus adopting, I guess, from, like, anywhere else? Um, I
1: think they heard what was happening with the one-child policy, and they thought oh. that they would do something And I have mixed emotions. I love my parents. I love the life that I have now. But I still think about the idea of the Western savior, how it can apply, not even to, you don't have to be white for the idea of the Western savior to sort of take root. And now I'm thinking about what's happening in Ukraine, which is tragic, but I'm also thinking about U.S. imperialism and Mm -hmm. even intervention in in other areas, and how there's such a double standard when it comes to reporting on certain parts of the world.
0: Yeah, I think you said that very well, actually. I don't know what, couldn't add to that, but that's, yeah, I think the West, the, the savior complex is like a U.S. issue, not necessarily down to the individual, but a lot of individuals in the U.S. do possess that thought, too. And I yeah. So.
1: I think it was the Half the Sky movement, if I remember correctly. Cheryl Wu Dun and her husband went to various areas in what might be considered the Global South. Although I dislike that term or the idea of labeling countries into mm, the Global North and the Global South, I still remember that she would go to these various countries and put in these programs meant to help them but at the same time she really didn't look into their political structure and i think it's better to sometimes to uplift the local activists if that makes sense who understand the political structure and the cultural context rather to come in rather than to come in and think
0: that oh i know what's best for them yeah that's a that's a very interesting thought because i I I wonder if people are starting to sort of go more that direction of allowing individuals within the, within those countries to like have a more active voice, or maybe that could be just all the news or media that I am exposed to that I, I hear that, that a lot of individuals local to the area will be representing their area versus having, well, I guess that brings up a whole nother conversation about the recent Olympics and the nationality thing, but on an activism level, I thought I did hear about during the like global conference that a lot of really younger individuals came from all these countries and represented and talked about what's going on in their home country versus like having somebody in the US who's originally from that country then talk about it. I was like, Oh, that's really great to hear that we're hearing yeah. these things.
1: Like with climate change, there are some exactly. activists from these countries that are most affected who are already doing so much. Right. Exactly.
0: Before I forget, I'm going to add a break. For some, of your, for some of the study researches, are any of your study research programs are they abroad at all or do you want to go abroad for that?
1: I thought about that but right now all of my research programs are in the United States. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I applied to several programs in the Midwest just because they had opportunities there. I know was one application I think the Big Ten application if I remember correctly Mm -hmm. and I heard it's cheaper there. I'm not sure how I would be treated, especially as an Asian American woman in the Midwest. Although I think my mother's family originally in the United States, they lived in Chicago for a time. So I think they have a significant Japanese American population there. But I also applied to schools
0: within California as well. So fingers crossed I get into those oh yeah that's interesting i guess in the midwest the programs may be cheaper maybe they offer more scholarship who knows um yeah yeah Yeah, the midwest is a different experience i want to say i guess it depends where you are and if you're in like a city it helps a lot
1: yeah i have a friend who goes to purdue she grew up in oh, yeah. mm, she went to the same high school as me and she said that mm, she went to at purdue university it's mostly white and that was quite a shock for her
0: mm. is your friend actually like asian as well
1: uh, i think her mom is papa half, uh, half asian half african-american her dad's white so she could technically pass as white, but at the same time, she said when she heard people making racist comments, she had to call them out on it saying that, hey, you shouldn't be saying things like that. I don't agree with that. And mm-hmm. sometimes it made people feel uncomfortable when she called them out on those comments yeah. because they weren't used to having it called out before.
0: Oh yeah. Cause I guess a lot of people, especially in the Midwest, I mean, this is generalizing, but I would say that's a similar experience to what, I mean, even I had that experience of like, it's mostly white here. Where's all the diversity? Have you been to Southern California? I have not. I've been to, I think the furthest South I visited LA, but I think that's a very typical tourist thing to do is to like, go to LA, see the Hollywood sign. <laughs>
1: no offense to the hollywood sign but it's really a tourist trap
0: oh yeah it's literally
1: a bunch of letters i think i don't remember what exactly they're made out of and they're supported with something in the back there's better attractions in la like griffith observatory for instance Yeah, have you been there
0: i did i did a hike to there that was really cool i guess is that near the hollywood letters too am i getting that right
1: Uh, I think you could take a picture of your, or a selfie of yourself in front of the Hollywood sign if you hike in Griffith Park, I remember. It's been a few years since I've been If I remember correctly, it was a really
0: cool hike. I was like, wow, this is just, I don't know, it just didn't feel like you were in a city anymore, which was really cool. Um, Yeah. Because New York City, of course, there's the tourist things here too, and then there's like hiking in a way, like if you go on a train that takes you out of the city but I still remember the experience of hiking in LA for the Griffith Griffith Observatory specifically like just that experience in itself I was like I don't I don't know if it's cuz I'm not from there but um I don't know I can't match that experience at all like that yeah.
1: I went to New York Our choir performed at Carnegie Hall. I remember there a couple times, and then I got lost the second time in New York City with a few of my friends, and we were using Google Maps. And it looks different on Google Maps than when you actually step outside and you're hit with a blast of freezing air. I think there was snow on the ground, if I remember correctly, and we're in. Even though we kind of feel like tourists when we go to Los Angeles because we live closer to the beach area, at the same time, we Angelinos are weather wimps. <laughs> or a lot mm-hmm. of us
0: are. Oh, yeah. Because I guess growing up where the weather probably stays relatively consistent and then coming to like the wind tunnels of the city.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because of all those buildings, the air tends mm-hmm. to flow through those tunnels. Oh yeah. And then I remember, it was 80 it can be 80 degrees in February in southern California. Oh wow. I don't think that's... I even
0: own a heavy winter coat. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, you probably don't need one. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. I don't I, I don't think I've ever lived in an area where I don't have like the four seasons.
1: Well, we do have fire season and the rainy season and Santa Ana winds, which blows a lot of air all over the place. So I guess we get our own. And then we also have earthquakes as well, although most of them are pretty minor,
0: Really talking up California. (laughs) It's a place to visit. Yeah. Uh, Or live, I guess.
1: Yeah, watch me become the social media intern or something for a Visit California
0: webpage. That would be really funny. It's like, visit us during this time where it's all rain and earthquakes. Okay.
1: Yeah. Okay. One of your questions was, "Have you been back to China?" I believe. Yeah,
0: yeah. Have you have you been back to China, or I guess Japan even, because that's where your I guess your family ancestry is too.
1: No, we were going to go to on a trip mm, to that region, and then COVID nineteen hit <gasps> and said, "Ha ha, you're not going there." You're not. Oh. So. so I'd love to visit Japan one day. And I wouldn't mind seeing where I am, where I came from. Unfortunately, I don't speak that much, or I don't speak any Chinese. And I might learn at some point, but right now, between all the research, I'm not
0: sure if I have the bandwidth. Or the time even, right? Because it's a a lot to be researching and then to do that to a language.
1: Yeah. Have you been?
0: I have. I've been back to China a few times, and then, I, oh my gosh, I guess it's been since 2017. I went back to the to the SWI, the Social Welfare Institute in Ningbo, which is where I'm adopted from. Also, I guess I went to that same White Swan Hotel, but I don't even remember it. But people say that's the same place. It surprises me because I maybe is it like a chain? Because I thought that. I'm further north than I think where you're adopted from. So I was so confused. Was um, it
1: Sha Leng Keller who, mm, the, I think she talked, she's from New York mm. and she talked about how she enjoyed hiking. I think she said she might be from mm, her the same region
0: of China as me, if I remember correctly. Oh. Yeah, that that's yes, Xiaoling, That's right. It probably is her. I know it's been a while. Probably, I know. I'm trying to remember where we adopted from. It's like you're from this part of China. I used to like always pull up a map, and then it's like, I'm sure somebody else will listen. They'll know where you are. <laughs> wow. Yeah,
1: I did a map quiz, or it wasn't. It was more of a map mini paper that I did where I researched the history of. Guangzhou and migration there and it's weird mm. because I think a proto-Vietnamese group of people were the people who really developed the area into an international harbor if I remember correctly so it saw oh. travelers from all around the world so it's always been a pretty cult- or for a long time it's been culturally and ethnically diverse Like Mm. there isn't one group of people who come specifically from there. It's seeing people from all over the world. So that's what I, and I think there's some Africans who live there now. So China and that migration and ethnicity in modern China class is pretty interesting because people say, oh, I'm of Chinese ancestry, but we realize that even that isn't all that helpful because people of chinese descent come from various groups.
0: Yeah, I think I've heard from other adoptees too. Someone I was talking to yesterday said they have like korean ancestry in there in their like 23me profile or something that the mostly chinese but some people have said like oh yeah, I have like some korean too. I was like, I mean, I guess that make I mean that makes sense that we probably come from areas close by as well
1: yeah my parents got me a 23 and me ancestry kit and Mm. i think i was like maybe 92 percent chinese although it didn't specify which chinese ethnicity and i Mm. think i had a little bit of vietnamese as well
0: which makes sense
1: because i i tend to tan a lot Mm. but there isn't really one face that really adequately describes an entire nation. Yeah. The idea That's... of nation states is a fairly new construct on the world history stage. So I think it's interesting to see how people migrate and shape a place over time.
0: Yeah. It is pretty fascinating to just to see the, the changes and the developments Um Did your college have Asian American studies? You know, I'm not, I'm sure they did, but I didn't take any of those classes. Uh, And it could be my experience in college too. I wasn't quite aware that I was like Asian American fully. I was always, I've always been aware growing up that I'm Asian American or like that I'm not, that I'm obviously, that I'm Chinese, but really understanding and exploring it too, I don't think I really did until post university. But I'm sure they had classes for Asian American studies. I think similar to your friend's experience at Purdue, I was just like, Oh, there's like a big divide between the culture or I guess just the people. Like it seems all the white people are over here and all the African American Mm -hmm. African American people are like doing their own thing and they I mean they had their own like sororities and fraternities. So I was like, there really is, it seems to me, like a big divide here. Uh, and then all the students who came internationally seem to only really stay together. I, I feel like I didn't really see a lot of people interacting outside of, like, their core groups. It could just be that was my experience. So, But I'm yeah. confident there had to be some classes, for sure. And the international students and in studies program seemed very small. So, eh. yeah.
1: Growing up in Torrens, I grew my friend group growing up was pretty, somewhat heterogeneous. There wasn't really one Asian or one ethnicity that really dominated. I I wouldn't say that I knew people from various backgrounds and I think at the high school I went to, it was more in that or people didn't necessarily stick to one ethnic or nationality group there were people they often conglomerate based off of shared interests in large part Mm -hmm. like a lot of the track kids hung out together although there were quite a few Japanese Americans playing basketball for our high school but there were also Filipino Americans on Mm -hmm. the team as well and then was there a turning point for you like a political event or something that really affected
0: the way that you saw yourself Ooh, goodness because I think what inspired me to go to China finally was I mm, I was living near home but not too close and I just was like you know I'm getting I think I was honestly like I'm getting older I was turning 25 and I was like you know this this might be a good time to actually like, go back to China so that was just sort of like inspired there to really become involved I feel like I haven't completely immersed myself in being involved with like the Asian American culture or culture quote unquote cuz again that's a very general yeah. idea <laughs> but I would say I'm definitely more aware of the race I mean being in New York too I'm just, like, always, like, keeping an eye out for people, like, how they react if they see someone like myself who's Asian versus how they interact with people who are not Asian or other minorities.
1: Yeah. It's even if you don't necessarily, feel, even if your lived experiences might be different, you're still seen a certain way by the outside yeah. society.
0: Oh, Yeah. And it could be also we're doing the same thing to other people, like, oh, I'm watching these people passing by or on the commute, and I'm having a assumption about what their life is, so. Um,
1: yeah, it takes active a, work to really unlearn our biases, because we're all is. immersed in these systems.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh, I grew up in this system where I'm understood. I mean, at the root of it too like instinct too and what you feel safe sometimes you have that sense of like danger Uh, i mean always follow that
1: so yeah Uh, there's and i was thinking about the conversations too about these attacks on the asian american community and there's a huge debate over whether to increase the police presence or not Mm. and it's like i do mm, I do want to address anti-Asian hate crimes but I also recognize that in many cases I don't want our trauma to be addressed by something used to uphold systems of oppression if that makes sense so trying to recognize my own role in making sure I'm not perpetrating these systems.
0: Oh yeah I mean because you hear about I mean, like increasing police presence, is that necessarily going to stop or lessen the danger? Maybe. I don't know. But then I've also heard, I have also heard stories of some of the policies and systems in place with police and how they treat even, uh, I mean, this goes to another direction, but like uh, rape cases too. And you hear like about those stories of how the sometimes that's not addressed in the fastest way. And that's why other organizations have, come out to help with that sort of challenge and but it's like uh this is it's a whole nother like opens up a whole nother conversation related to worms. like yeah exactly of like
1: yeah dr russell jung is doing really good work though with stop aapi hate though who who is this uh i think he's a professor at san francisco state university he was the one mm. who really kick-started the stop aapi hate campaign to track oh. these incidents and they don't necessarily report them to the police because he's an ethnic studies specialist so he understands kind of the relationship between state power and their often adverse relationship with bipoc communities but he does mm. provide some guidance to for policies on how to address these
0: issues, oh, I definitely will have to look more into the work that this professor has done because I didn't. I'm, I didn't because I was wondering when how like stop a aapi hate became. Um, because I think it definitely blew up during this time, and usually, like, there's always an origin of like who created and started this mm. mass. Uh, I, I think trend is the wrong word but I want to say it's like trend right now yeah because it's like on um, all social media just all of a sudden I see a lot of media or content related to like a- AAPI hate it's like has this always been around or when did it become uh, like a forefront idea
1: yeah and the irony is that many people under appreciate Asian American studies or ethnic studies in general, you hear this idea that, oh, it's, mm, oh, mm, learn about it on your own time or you hear departments not getting a lot of financial support but in Mm -hmm. crises like these these departments are the ones that really help us contextualize the violence and figure out how to move forward so the work they're doing is incredibly important
0: but it really takes a crisis to appreciate that oh yeah that seems to be a common pattern it's like when it becomes an issue or becomes a crisis a crisis as you said is when more resources or acknowledgement are brought to the forefront with it too. Um I mean, I imagine that's what's now kind of happening with Ukraine because I think we all have known that this was going to be coming and I've heard different reports about it, but it's like, yeah, technically this has been going on since 2014, but now the whole world is involved.
1: Because, yeah, it kind of took yeah. it, it
0: to hit the boiling
1: point for people to start paying attention. Yeah, otherwise it's like, oh, it's just an afterthought for many people. And sometimes I wonder, where do we draw the line between meaningful activism and performative activism? That's a tricky
0: issue. Yes, that is. That is. Definitely. Um, again. And then, like, related to adoption, too. That's a question I definitely have thought about and explored. Uh, myself was like huh. I really wonder like because when you adopt child of course we do become our own selves as adults and it's like I don't know what people expect sometimes when they decide to adopt but um, hearing some stories I do wonder it's like I really wonder like what our what the what our parents were thinking when they decided to adopt Um, like was it not necessarily performative, but is there, like, an element of that, especially when they're, like, talking about it with other pa- families and parents? Uh, Let's like just circle back to, like, what you said in the beginning where there were some other Asian American families that were adopting. And they're like, we're not going to tell our child that they're adopted. Yeah.
1: Was like, uh. <laughs> yeah, that could, that would probably, if they find out if they're a teenager or an adult, that could be a, it's like, do I trust right. my parents after them keeping that big of a secret from me? Oh my gosh
0: yeah i was like uh i feel like that's not cool to do i know i personally would not appreciate that i was like that's like part of your history you should you should be entitled to know that for sure yeah i think that
1: goes into the idea that mm, mm, people expect adopt the image of the adoptee as the perpetual child even though there are many korean adoptees who are older adults Mm -hmm. now
0: Yes, or at least yes. middle age. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Have you seen the film First Person Plural? By, I think, mm-hmm. I'm trying to do f- Diane Liam Borchet or something like that. Mm. She reunited yes. with her adopted parents in Korea, and she said it was pretty uncomfortable for her, or, or her birth parents, because... She realized that she hadn't seen them for a number of years, so she couldn't just pick up where she left off.
0: Hmm. No, I haven't seen that. Is that something that's available like on Netflix or one of the streaming services?
1: I can see, I can look into that, but I remember, I think it was Sarah Park Dolan, a scholar of literature she studied specifically korean adoption and literature and she criticized many adoption novels for never really showing parents reuniting with their children if that makes sense and she said these they didn't have to really navigate the pressure of having these additional figures in their life and how does that how do they rethink their relationships with not only their adopted parents, but their biological parents? You said a
0: lot of novels also don't really, or resources don't really?
1: They often, one of the things that she wrote was that it, they sort of put the searches on the person instead of addressing the institutional barriers
0: that comes to searching for your parents. I feel like that's probably still very prevalent today even i want to say i'm not an expert in any of this uh these topics but i can imagine from what i've heard it's still the case
1: yeah and it's even harder when your parents are from a different country too Mm
0: -hmm. i believe that
1: yeah and then, even if you reunite with them, it's not like you're going to go back to square one either. Uh-huh. So, it's a really messy issue that sort of blurs a lot of lines.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of. I'm sure, to some extent, all of us understand. Like, even with our birth families, if we were to reunite with them, or if we even want to, that it's not. It wouldn't. It's not going to be the same type of relationship. I don't know. I mean, what we hope and our expectations, I I feel like it would be very different from that idea. Um, because yeah. there is that whole, the whole history is there. That yeah, and there,
1: there's also a different cultural context. And then I was looking into the one child policy, I think it was Deng Xiaoping's government passed it in part to reestablish legitimacy for his government because the Chinese Communist Party took a tank or public opinion of it went down after the Cultural Revolution so in a way they were sort of trying to address overpopulation but also reestablish themselves as a legitimate government after what happened Mm. with the previous administration oh so okay. if you add that, it's a whole different kind mm, of worms yeah. to consider.
0: Oh, yeah. And that's definitely having to be more familiar with, like, the Chinese history, too, which I'm sure you've you become very familiar with with your studies, too.
1: I mean, I'm still learning it. There's a there's a few times where it's like, huh, that went over my head or whatever.
0: Mm. I mean, you're, I feel like you've been you're very well spoken about all these topics. I'm, I'm learning a lot from you just in this conversation alone. It's like, I did not know any of this um, because it was not my field of study or I was not as interested to really dive in. Um, But I appreciate you sharing all this insight too uh, from your own experience as well and then with your studies.
1: Yeah. It's interesting though talking to adoptees who grew up in white white families because that's a whole different ballpark. I, Mm. I would say that Even though we're all unlearning systems of oppression to a certain extent, I feel like having Asian American parents, even though it did have some complexities, having parents of a different nationality, at least my parents sort of understood about racism in the United States, whereas that wasn't something that I had to explain to my parents. And maybe for other adoptees, maybe it was slightly different. I can't speak for them, but I know that... Right. It's likely different having parents who are Asian American, especially in this climate.
0: It's a good point. Yeah, because I do think that is like a common commonality I hear from other adoptees who have like white parents is uh, like educating them or actually talking about racism. It's different for everybody. But I I was like, I don't think we really got into that conversation uh, like I kind of hoped we would now, especially at this time.
1: Yeah, that's a really tricky issue, too, because on one point, it's like, you love people, but at the same time, and... You know people mean well, but at the same point, it can be exhausting sometimes trying to educate people. So you also have to keep your own mental health in mind and certain people right. have an emotional bandwidth and you shouldn't be obligated to educate others at the expense of your own mental
0: health as well. Right. You you said that very well. <laughs>
1: I think having Asian American studies courses, even if they don't always talk about adoption, at least it helped provide me with more of a context. And mm-hmm. sometimes when I was younger, I didn't have the vocabulary to really express certain terms. Right. And now that I've taken classes, it helps for sure.
0: Oh, it does. It does. It makes you very... I mean, I think it's always more reputable when somebody's able to talk about it with like what terminology that anybody can understand, too. Uh, not necessarily just the advanced language <laughs> that exists.
1: Yeah, and I think having the Melon Mays undergraduate fellowship program definitely helps for me because the program is designed around bringing more voices into academia that haven't traditionally been part of the institution. Mm. So there's really this commitment to making sure that people's stories are heard. So even if there aren't a lot of other adoptees in it, at least people are open to hearing these kind of things. And I think that's a different... And then two, my school isn't a primarily white institution, It's pretty diverse, and I have, even though I do have some criticisms about the Eurocentrism in the curriculum. At least my experiences are probably different than my friend at Purdue's.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I imagine. Um, Well, I guess this would be a good way to end on. um, Sort of related too, but is there is there anything you'd like to hear from other adoptees that you're curious about or? Uh, anybody else who adoptions has become a part of their life
1: this is yeah. this is one of the hardest questions i think <laughs> i guess were there any turning points in your journey as an adoptee because i know that people can have differing opinions over time about mm-hmm. their adoption their family circumstances and mm, we're all rough drafts of ourselves so how has your thinking about adoption changed over time I guess is what I would ask
0: yes I agree I think because depending when you talk to somebody and then as time passes uh, it changes sometimes the just the thought and then the the relationship they have with their own adoption it's like oh okay yeah well I appreciate you taking the time to share more about your story and then also really providing a lot of education too that I I think many people find valuable I find very valuable and I feel like I have to like listen back and look up all these names and resources you mentioned just to like become a little bit more informed so it's like oh whoa (laughs) thank you for having me on the podcast yes I'll talk to you later I appreciate it Thank you for listening to ABC Adopted Babies from China podcast. If you'd like to share your story, please contact Adopted Babies from China at gmail.com or Adopted Babies from China pod on Instagram and Facebook. Bye.